0: You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com.
1: Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Romans chapter 8 verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know
0: Thank you, Jacob. Good evening. Welcome to Mercy View. My name is Brad, one of the pastors here. Honored that you've chosen to be with us tonight. Um, I'm going to take a point of personal privilege and uh, add one more quick announcement uh, into the mix. Next Sunday evening, here on this stage at 7.30 p.m., uh, a group that I have the privilege of singing with, that includes my wife and Three of my oldest children will be performing in concert here, and so we'd love to have you come and be a part of that um, Yeah, it'll be right here 730 p.m. We'd love to have you come and join us as we uh, share the gospel uh, through music one of the most touching and meaningful testimonies uh, That I've ever heard from a Christian believer uh, is from a, a lady by the name of Joni Erickson Tata And uh, some of you may know that name. When Joni was 17 years old, she had misjudged the shallowness of some water that she dove into, and she ended up suffering a severe spinal injury that resulted in her becoming a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. And in her autobiography, she talks about the season, a long season, of of just depression and doubts and skepticism about God and his goodness but the lord in that process and through that process did an amazing work in her life she learned how to paint with her mouth and she began to uh, create other kinds of art and begin to share her testimony and the lord has used her tremendously to encourage particularly the disabled christian community but also the Christian community as a whole because of how she has responded to her suffering. And one time she was asked about this, how she really came to a place of of peace about what had happened, and here's what she said. She said, I came to a place where I realized that God was more concerned with conforming me to the likeness of his son than leaving me in my comfort zones. She said, God is always more interested in inward qualities than outward circumstances. Things like refining my faith, humbling my heart, cleaning up my thought life, and strengthening my character. Don't miss what Joni is saying. She is saying, after becoming a quadriplegic, the suffering that goes with that, it's, it's a lifetime of suffering. She says... I know that what God is up to through that has more to do with what he's doing on the inside of me. I remember um, many years ago, it might have been in premarital counseling or the early years of, of marriage with Holly, but I came across a quote in a book by a guy who writes on relationships, Gary Thomas, and he said something along these lines. He said, God is always more interested in your holiness than your happiness. As I was thinking about uh, 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 Joni's testimony, that's what she's saying. She has come to a place where she understands in the midst of deep suffering that God was more interested in what he was doing inside of her. And I remember reading that quote by Gary Thomas and thinking, wow, if that is true, that changes everything. It means that even when things are difficult, God is doing something inside of me. He's always at work. In particular, he is conforming me to himself. And the more that I thought about that quote, I think it's true of all of life. God is more interested in your godliness, in your holiness, in your sanctification, than your happiness. Now, don't mishear me. God he, he doesn't want you to not be happy. It just means that sometimes he allows us to go through things that does not produce happiness in order to shape you and to form you, in particular, into his likeness. And in light of what you just heard Jacob read, even in our deepest and profound and intense suffering. Tonight we continue our series through the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans called Reign of Grace and really what we're trying to do in this series at a high level is allow God his rightful place in the throne room of our hearts to sit and to reign but to reign with his mercy and to reign with his grace. A few weeks ago we came to what I believe is the summit of the book of Romans, Romans 8. Romans 8 begins with a phrase, with a, with a verse that's well known. You know it well. We've, we've referenced it a lot in the last few weeks. But it's a, it's a verse that we under-experience in the Christian life. And it's this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus We're still in chapter 8 tonight. We'll actually be in it tonight and next week. And Paul is continuing to uh, help us understand what it looks like for us to live within the reality of no condemnation for you. And tonight he's going to do that through the prism of suffering, how this idea of no condemnation can change your view of suffering. And as we do that, I want to invite you to see two things. First, God's providence furnishes hope during suffering, and second, God's peace provides hope during suffering. If you have your Bibles or electronic devices, keep them open to Romans 8, beginning there in verse 18. Paul begins this passage of Romans 8 with a phrase saying, for I consider... Anytime you see the word for beginning a paragraph, it's typically meant to help us go, okay, he's connecting what he's just said to what he's getting ready to say. And what Paul is saying is what we talked about last week, particularly our adoption into the family of God. After considering that, he is going to then tell us what this looks like, particularly as we think about The issue of suffering, but I want us to think about what he just means first off by the phrase, for I consider. What Paul is doing here is using an accounting term. He is doing the math to add up what is true, and he is considering something is true because he has evaluated it. And by the way, Paul was speaking with integrity and talking about suffering. When he evaluates the issue of suffering, he's not. Uh, evaluating it objectively, but subjectively as well. He had went through extreme suffering. And here's what Paul says he has considered as he's looked at suffering in his own life and as he thinks about what suffering looks like in the life of a Christian there in verse 18. He says he has considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. One of the richest verses in all of the scripture. we got to unpack this and see what Paul is saying. At a very high level, what Paul is saying here is that how you view suffering always relates to what you value. And you can only value suffering, even just thinking about that phrase, valuing suffering... you can only value it if you've evaluated suffering is what Paul is getting at here and here's what Paul has come to understand about the issue of suffering Paul is saying that any kind of suffering from large to small that you and I go through in our lives on this side of eternity are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us." Now that is a really interesting way to put it. Here's what Paul is getting at. The word glory here encompasses everything that God is doing here and now in you and in the world until he brings all of creation under his rule and reign in the new heavens and the new earth. So, considering suffering as unworthy in this life means that though suffering is real and hard and intense and in some cases to the point of overwhelming, for the Christian, we can know that we know that God is up to something bigger in our suffering and even outside of it. Friends, you and I know suffering is hard because when we are going through it it, it, it makes us weigh what is really and truly important, what is eternally valuable. I, I, I wonder if you have felt that, like when you are walking through suffering, suffering is pressing in on you, you begin to find that you have some clarity about life that you didn't have before. What is happening there? Well, the Lord is tenderizing us the, 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 the spiritual tenderness that begins to reveal itself is then a place where the Spirit can speak to our heart about what really matters. I can think of some specific moments in my life where the suffering was so profound that it was like everything cleared away and I saw what was most important And the things, the frivolous things, the things that I didn't need to care about. Man, I just, I couldn't believe that I'd invested any energy into any of those things. It's an amazing phenomenon that, that I've experienced that I know many of you have experienced as you've walked through suffering. Theologian and author C.S. Lewis puts words to this idea when he says that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone To rouse a deaf world. Friends, Paul is saying that when you walk through suffering, you need to do the math. You need to evaluate what this is all about as you're walking through it. Because if you're not careful, suffering will be an opportunity for you to focus on yourself only. But but C.S. Lewis, Paul are both saying here, will the megaphone of suffering rouse you to a greater perspective about what God is doing in you and in the world, and in particular about what God is going to reveal in you in the future? Now look with me if you would at verse 19. Paul moves quickly from the micro to the macro to show us how suffering is both very personal... But it's not only personal. Paul says that the entire created order is waiting on this future glory as well to be revealed in it. He says that all of creation is yearning for this restoration that comes through, he uses this phrase, the revealing of the sons of God. Now, that phrase, sons of God, is just another way of talking about Christians. So, If you're a believer here tonight, what what Paul is saying here is is this sort of revealing, it's going to come to those who have what we talked about last week, the rights of inheritance of all that God has in store for them. But look, Look with me, if you would, at verse 20. Paul tells us more about how this created order, all of creation, including you and I, finds itself in the condition that it is in. And notice what Paul says. He says that all of creation is marked by something, two things that are in tension with one another, a tension between futility and hope. Now, futility uh, is a a word that we could use to describe the, the, the reality of sin in our world. When Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that we live in a world that's full of of weariness. That's what we're talking about here. And that's recorded, the beginning of that is recorded in Genesis 3, the introduction of sin into the world through our first parents, Adam and Eve. And Paul's point is that the earth is not the way it's supposed to be. Sin has fundamentally distorted and warped the places that we inhabit. Now again, Paul says, though, that this futility is mixed with hope. And the good news of God's providence and sovereignty is that even creation is without hope. I wonder if you look out at creation, out at culture, out at society, and you think, man, it's just hopelessness. No, Paul is saying, don't do that. Paul is saying that because of God's providence, because of his sovereignty, even creation itself is not without hope. And, and that is a real temptation when you're walking through suffering is to, to believe the opposite of that right in particular we get so focused on ourselves in the midst of suffering that that we don't lift our eyes up and realize man God is still in control we have to remind our hearts of that we have to help others to help remind their hearts it is deeply biblical to believe that there is a macro plan a sovereign plan that God is unfolding to his glory And that should bring us deep hope because of what we see outside of us and inside of us. A biblical view of suffering has both a robust view of the brokenness of the world, but also a robust view of hope. Because what happens with a biblical view here is that sort of hope, it can eclipse suffering even though it doesn't remove it. what is creation hoping for? Look there at verse 21. Paul tells us that creation is longing for deliverance from its bondage to decay, which is just another way of Paul saying what he just said. The bondage and the decay or the futility or the curse of sin that creation has been subjected to and the entire created order longs for will come to an end. But again, there is because of this deep hope. And that's why Paul uses this metaphor. I actually think it's, uh, I don't think I've ever noticed this uh, until my study of it to prepare for this tonight. But he uses a metaphor to describe the condition of the world as groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Here's what I mean by um, a a new um, sort of revelation about what, what Paul is saying here. Just want you to think of it this way. It's the difference between the sound of painful groaning in a hospice and the groaning on the OB floor. One unfortunately signals suffering and and maybe even death. But friends, childbirth signals life. Here's the first thing that I want you to see this evening. God's providence furnishes hope during suffering. Man, uh, if there has ever been a time in our wider culture where I, I think the Christian and the church has been stretched to its limit as it relates to suffering, it's, it's been the past two years. It's unlike anything I've ever seen. There has been a, a groaning that has been palatable and discernible. The futility of life has been tangible, it's been um, really difficult. The, The temptation to feel that somehow God doesn't care or at worst he's not in control has been real. But the truth is some of you have felt that before Sunday, March 15th, 2020. You've experienced death in your families. You've experienced the death of a close friend. You've struggled with a terminal illness yourself or someone close to you has. Some of you have suffered for a lifetime in dysfunctional families. Some of you have experienced uh, very difficult marital challenges. You've seen things in our culture that have disheartened you, school shootings, racial disharmony, terrorist attacks on US soil, devastating natural disasters in our country. And the reality is that whether it's been the last two years or any time before March 15, 2020, our world has a fundamental brokenness built into its fabric. The last two years, really, is just a microcosm of what humanity has been experiencing since the fall in Genesis 3. Suffering is and has always been a fundamental actuality of life in a broken world. But I just said that God's providence furnishes hope during suffering. And I want you to notice something that Paul says when he's talking about this idea of of suffering in the world in the macro view. When Paul says that creation was subject to futility willingly do you see that word there in verse 20 here's what it means God in response to sin was the one who subjected the created order to suffering allowed it to continue and in other words the hardship the difficulties and sufferings connected to a fallen feudal world God still allows those things to happen, but they don't happen outside of his parameters of his rule and his reign. And I don't understand it completely, guys, seriously. But in some mysterious way, he sees them as enlarging his glory in the world and in you. See, when you come up against suffering in, in, in the larger culture outside of you or even inside of you, you need to know it is never pointless. God has, again it's mysterious, but he has subjected creation to this futility in hope. Paul is saying that those two categories have to exist in the heart of a Christian if we wanna suffer well. We have to see both pain and providence together. See, if you're suffering now, or if you're processing suffering that has already happened in your life, if you're not suffering, the, the reality is, is you will be at some point. If you don't have those two realities side by side in your heart and your mind, you will waste your suffering. You will get mad at God, or at worst, you'll turn away from Him. And Paul is trying to say, I want you to reject the sort of either or dynamic that most of us live in, that events of suffering cannot be subject to futility and hope at the same time. Paul's saying, that's not what I want you to think about when you think about suffering. A biblical view of suffering, again, has a robust view of the brokenness of the world and a robust view of hope. Hope never can remove suffering completely but it can overwhelm and it can eclipse it. And God promises that hope because he's in control. God's providence furnishes hope during suffering. Now look with me if you would back at verse 23. Having given us a 30,000 foot view of suffering, Paul brings the camera back into the micro and returns to another way that you and I are to deal with suffering. Notice in verse 19, Creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth, but in verse 23, so are we. We feel the weight of sin in us and around us. But notice how he describes us. He says that these groaning believers are those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So Paul is reminding us of something that we have said in this series already. We have received the Holy Spirit as a pledge or a down payment on our coming physical redemption. That's what the first fruit means. But I actually think the most important phrase that's found there in verse 23 is when Paul says that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. Now, if you read that carefully, it might strike you as odd because just last week, we said you already have the spirit of adoption. Well, this is a case, and you'll see this happen in the scriptures from time to time, of something that we call the already not yet dynamic. So here it is, yes, you are a believer, you have already been spiritually adopted by the Father, yet, if you were a believer, you are still waiting for the full effect of that adoption to take place, will once and for all take place in what theologians call glorification. The time where God makes everything new, erases sin in us and in the world. Now, as we come to verses 24 and 25, Paul ends with a white hot focus on a word that we've used quite a bit tonight already, but it's the word hope. He uses it five times in two verses, and I think this is why. He knows that suffering is a struggle for hope. Right? How, how many of you would describe your suffering as, as one where you are fighting to believe that God is good? What is that? You're, you're fighting for hope, that there could be a, a better story, that there could be something greater going on. But the reality is, is that suffering has a gravitational pull many times in our lives that pulls us away from hope towards despair, towards bitterness, towards frustration, even depression, and I want you to notice, though, what Paul says there. He, 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 he wants to ground your hope in something. Paul says, in this hope, we are saved. And again, he is referencing a future fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. Now, when we see this word saved, um, many times we think, you know, we're only talking about God saving us from our sin... In the here and now. And though salvation is no less than that, the Bible also uses the word salvation to describe that there is one day going to be a fuller expression of salvation that will come to pass for you if you're a believer. That's what Paul is doing here. And then Paul says this, look there in the middle of 24. He says that that hope, by definition, is something that is not seen. What Paul is getting at here is that hope sees with a completely different set of eyes. In fact, it looks beyond the present circumstances with the eyes of faith remembering God's worldwide redemptive plan that we just talked about, that that's not being frustrated in any way, but also that God is doing something in us. This is a tie-in to what we said earlier that the eyes of hopeful faith look at the world through this lens even as those sufferings press in on us but it also reminds us that God is refining us spiritually. And then Paul closes out our passage by saying this. Look there at verse 25. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Remember verse 18 told us that our present sufferings are unworthy of what is to come. So what is the response of the people who have this perspective that Paul is saying that that we need to have here? He is saying, and he's saying like, I I realize that suffering is real and difficult, so you're gonna have to have patience. He's saying you're gonna have have some resoluteness and some tenacity. Trusting that God is working out His will to not just deliver you, but to deliver all of those who put their faith in Jesus and ultimately to one day make all things new, as Revelation 21 says. And in the midst of real suffering, He is saying that you can experience something that passes understanding. And it brings us to the second thing that I want to invite you to see this evening. God's peace provides hope during suffering. Now, one of the things that can happen when we talk about suffering and Paul's words here to us, it can leave us feeling a little bit like we have to be a super Christian to pursue hope uh, in the midst of suffering. Some of you are like, I don't even know how to do the things that you're talking about here, Brad. I am so hurt. I am in such a difficult place. I do feel overwhelmed. I do feel despondent. I want to just encourage you in in one particular way we we, um, think sometimes that if we don't respond to suffering in the way that Paul is talking about here that somehow we're feeling and how we're responding to suffering now in one sense Paul's lofty encouragement is meant to sort of shock us out of our focus on our circumstances over and above God's providence and glory But I don't want you to miss what else Paul is doing here. He is naming what is true for all Christians. And in naming what is true for all Christians that you will suffer, he is not saying that suffering is somehow wrong. Or that you, in the way that you respond to suffering, um, that it's sort of this linear, uh, easy, upward path. I'm reminded actually when I think about the tension that you and I feel in suffering and what Paul is talking about here calling us to of the story of Lazarus in John 11. If you remember that story, Jesus comes to the graveside of Lazarus, the one whom John says that Jesus loved, where Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, were grieving because Lazarus had died. Actually, what's interesting about the story is when the news first came to Jesus, Lazarus was just sick, really sick, and not dead yet. But Jesus, uh, it by all accounts, looks like he uh, did not get to Lazarus in time. Jesus is fully God. He knew the beginning of Lazarus' life, yet he didn't get there in time. And when, but when he gets there, um, one of the sisters says to him, you, you missed it. Like, he, you, you could have saved him, you're, you're too late. And what ended up happening is as they came around this graveside, the sisters are weeping, they're grieving. And it says in John 11 that when Jesus saw them weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then it just simply says, Jesus wept. Jesus was so moved by the grief of the sisters, that what he chose to do was enter into their suffering and wept with those who were weeping. It says that Jesus did this because he loved them. And here's what's happening, though, underneath this story. Jesus is seeing the havoc of death from the inside, and he feels it. He sees the devastation of suffering and he cries real emotional tears. He does not deny the uh, reality of suffering. He enters into it and the reason that he's moved is because he knows suffering was never his design. Friends, this is a window into how you and I can face suffering with hope. We don't do it stoically. We don't do it apathetically. We enter into it just like Jesus. And and don't miss this. Jesus is grieving suffering. Here's what that means. When you are walking through something difficult, when you feel groaning within yourself because of, of real and present suffering, it is right to go, this is not how it should be. Jesus sympathizes with you This is one sense in which you can experience the peace of God in the midst of suffering Jesus identifies with you in it But there is another way and I want to end here tonight with with this question is God Powerful enough to snap his finger to get rid of death and suffering in the world Some of you have asked that question You've asked that question of God in your own suffering. You've asked that question of God as you see the suffering around you. God, why can't you just make it go away? The answer to that question is sure. God is powerful enough to do that. But I want you to think about what we're asking if that's the question we're asking. We are saying, that God, in order for you to get rid of those things, of suffering, of death, you're gonna have to get rid of evil and brokenness in the world as well. What is included in that? You are. I am. Theologian G.K. Chesterton once once wrote to a newspaper, the newspaper had asked the question, what is wrong with the world? And he wrote back to them two words. I am. See, to get rid of evil, yes, you get rid of suffering, but you would have to get rid of us as well. We said in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. So what does God do in response to that? God knows that the only way to save you from that is, is if he gets involved, if he steps into your most dire suffering. And so he does. He goes to the cross. And through a process of sacrifice and suffering that no one in this room will ever experience or understand, he redeems us. That's the second way you get peace, by the way. You can know that no matter what you're going through, God has answered your greatest suffering, your spiritual suffering, which his his own suffering was required for. And now you are redeemed. So remember, when you suffer, God's providence furnishes hope during suffering. Again, in some mysterious way, God allows the hardships and the difficulties and the, the, the challenges of life connected to a fallen world to still within the parameters of his rule and reign make him more glorified but here we also see that when we suffer God's peace provides hope during suffering because he has entered into suffering to the point of death to sympathize with and ultimately to save you what peace what providence God desires to give in our suffering. Let's pray together.